Hello, thank you for tuning in to our Empire Lecture Series podcast. We hope this podcast finds you well, whether you're driving to work, between cases, or adding some education to your workout. Remember that all of these lectures are also available on our website and YouTube channel. And if you like what you hear, please rate us five stars and subscribe. Happy listening. So uh, I was asked to talk about uh, radical cystectomy for uh, high-grade uh, T1 urethelial cancer. Next slide, please. And uh, just by way of disclosures, um, uh, do a fair amount of clinical trials, uh, both in non-muscle disease, non-muscle invasive cancer and invasive bladder cancer. And uh, we have a couple of clinical trials in the Southwest Oncology Group supported by Genentech and JBL, which this is the Tokyo strain of BCG. I do some consulting patent on a TA subtype classifier. Um, I don't think much of what I'm going to talk about is relevant to this, but if it is, I'll, I'll point it out. Next slide, please. So this is what I'm going to cover. Uh, we'll talk about risk stratification, uh, importance of re-resection in high-grade T1 disease. Um, who are the ideal candidates for uh, initial uh, cystectomy or cystectomy as the first um, uh, treatment? Um, and then uh, we'll talk a bit more of an obvious situation with radical cystectomy for persistent or recurrent T1 disease, a little bit about outcomes, and then I'll finish with um, sort of interesting genomics uh, work. Next slide, please. Um, so uh, for risk stratification, it's really uh, critical to get an accurate assessment of um, stage and grade uh, before uh, determining appropriate therapy. So um, I put in here that T1 is always high grade and therefore high risk. There are these occasional patients who have a T1 low grade tumor. I think they're pretty rare. Um, maybe uh, a reflection of the change in the grading system where um, about 4% of grade twos were uh, reclassified as um, high grade and 60% low grade. And this may be where this comes up. So it, it does have an occasion, uh, but I think for discussion's sake, um, really going to be confining this to the overwhelming majority of patients who have high grade disease. There is a category of very high risk, and this would be uh, multiple or large uh, high grade tumors. Uh, uh, multifocal CIS and particularly CIS in the prostatic urethra because that's a reservoir for CIS that really can't be treated with BCG without a formal bladder neck resection. Um, and this is particularly important to patients who have um, uh, evidence of recurrence after treatment with BCG uh, because obviously in men, the prostatic urethra is this reservoir not going to be reached by the BCG. You have to sample the prostatic urethra uh, in patients who have evidence of uh, recurrence after BCG. And this would usually be evident by an uh, unexplained positive cytology, for example. And then uh, variant histology, and particularly micropapillary, is an aggressive variant of high-grade disease and these patients, I think most of us feel like ought to be treated with upfront cystectomy. You can advance to just, yep. 
Uh, we'll talk a little bit about substaging. There's been a lot of work done in this area, and I'll highlight a paper by Bas van Ren from the Netherlands next. And uh, I think it's really important to understand that you can't accurately stage T1 disease without um, uh, detrusor muscle in the specimen. I'll show you a slide illustrating that next. And then um, <clears throat> I guess I would have to say put all in parentheses uh, in terms of re-resection. We'll talk a little bit about the evidence around this. It's in our, all of our guidelines. And uh, um, you, you always want to err on the side of re-resection. I'll just give you an example of, uh, I'll give you a couple of cases, but um, a lot of times, you know, you resect the primary tumor and then you find out that it's a high-grade T1 disease, but you haven't really sampled the rest of the bladder. So about 30 to 40% of patients will have associated CIS, um, uh, blue cystoscopy, fluorescent cystoscopy. This is a sweet spot for detecting CIS. So um, there's other benefits to going back and re-resecting in addition to the obvious one of making sure you've removed all the papillary disease, that there's no persistent high-grade disease, there's no evidence of devasion, but also to sample the rest of the bladder, looking for CIS now that you know that you have a high-grade cancer. Next. So a little bit about substaging. So this is the work from uh, Bas van Ren, European Urology. It's been out quite a while, but this, he's uh, been a real student uh, of this. And you can see in the top panel, these are uh, uh, photomicrographs from his paper. Um, and uh, T1M would be uh, sort of minimal or microscopic. It's a single focus. They use a measurement of 0.5 millimeters or less and find a one high power field. I think if you look closely, you can see uh, the microscopic invasion between the, the, the two folds, as opposed to the bottom, there's easily established invasion of the lamina propria, and this would be more extensive, um, either in one large area or multiple areas. Next slide, please. So um, he looked at this uh, in uh, uh, just Kaplan-Meier, and you can see uh, the way the uh, a plot is organized that blue is um, uh, microscopic or micro minimal and the brown is established and you can see the clear difference in PFS uh, and these were all primary T1 tumors next and then in a multivariable analysis you can see that, um, uh, extensive invasion of the lamina propria T1M versus T1E had a profound independent impact on both progression and disease-specific survival advance. Um, and in summary, they found that this was a better uh, method of stratification versus an older T1ABC. Um, and uh, the nice thing about it, because you're essentially measuring things under the microscope, um, it's independent of the identification of um, <clears throat> blood vessels, which are apparent in mucosa, is the muscularis mucosa. And there's been a lot of studies um, discussing about the presence of that. 70% of, of uh, um, bladders, you know, looking at the lamina propria. And so this is just a nice reproducible way, at least in their hands. So I think the take home message is that um, extent and depth of invasion into the lamina propria uh, do have, appear to have an independent impact on outcome. Next. So um, I'll, I'll throw some things 
pearls in throughout the talk, as I was asked to do. Um, and uh, um, so quite a long time ago, uh, we were kind of trying to figure out how to, we were a smaller institution uh, at Baylor in the sense that uh, the volume of patients that we were seeing. So our consortium together, uh, the Bladder Cancer Research Consortium, uh, to kind of pool our data. So this was Baylor, UT Southwestern, uh, led by Yara Lotan and, uh, and Hopkins, led by Mark Schoenberg and Pierre Karakiewicz, who did his fellowship at Memorial, uh, uh, was our biostatistician. We published a lot of papers uh, with that consortium. It was made up of about 900 plus, uh, in this case, really radical cystectomy. But the point that I wanted to make here uh, is uh, you can see the impact of the presence of carcinoma in site in patients otherwise who had uh, clinical uh, uh, T1 uh, tumors. So, um, it's, so the message here is that you really sometimes have to look for this. And CIS is often going to be adjacent to the high-grade T1 tumor, but can often be remote. And so what I like to do is um, classify and and if I'm doing sort of site-specific biopsies, specify what's adjacent and what's remote and make sure I sample the rest of the bladder. Now, the, there's some caveats to that. For instance, uh, like the pa two patients I did TURs on yesterday, uh, they all were referred with the probable need for cystectomy, but one in particular, a trans uh, uh, guy on end-stage renal disease uh, on dialysis um, had such large volume disease, it really didn't matter biopsying the bladder. The guy needs a cystectomy, and he's an example of a patient that needs an upfront cystectomy with T1 high-grade disease. Next. So um, I'm going to throw in a bunch of cases. Uh, these are all patients that I've taken care of over the years. 64-year-old uh, lady, three-centimeter tumor right lateral wall inside the bladder. Uh, slice from the CT scan, completely resected, uh, T1 high-grade disease, muscularis propria, not involved, normal bimanual, standard of care, re-resection, um, and uh, uh, no residual cancer, which was good. So we've got her accurately staged as a T1 high-grade, um, and uh, no evidence of CIS on the, on the on, uh, site-directed biopsy. So next. So this uh, patient would fall into the category of high risk, but not very high risk. Standard of care re-resection is negative, and you can kind of flip through the options here. Uh, if you just uh, hit next, um, see that uh, uh, we treated her with uh, BCG, standard of care. And I realize the talks about cystectomy, but I think in order to understand who should get a cystectomy, we also need to understand uh, who can be treated with uh, BCG next. So it's important to understand the guidelines um, and the uh, AUA. I don't know if it's released yet. I guess it'll uh, coincide with the uh, what was going to be our annual meeting. Have updated the, the non-muscle invasive uh, bladder cancer guideline and standard of care would be BCG plus BCG induction plus three years of maintenance. Acknowledging that um, probably about a third of patients get to three years. Some of that's due to toxicity. Some of that's due to recurrence. And obviously, some of that's due to BCG shortage. And in times when uh, there's been a BCG shortage, uh, like now, although it, it seems to be easing, well, not like now, uh, we've been through once uh, before, uh, some patients were getting upfront cystectomy simply because they had high-risk disease and couldn't get BCG. 
Uh, EAU uh, randomized clinical trial also supports three years of maintenance in patients with um, high-risk disease. And uh, it's also important to understand the NCCN guidelines because this is often what we have to show to third-party payers to, to get approval for our treatments next. So SWOG 8507, what does 8507 mean? Is that the trial was initiated in 1985. So that was, uh, I guess, a year after I graduated medical school. Just shows you a little bit of how old I am. Um, and this was the trial that established um, the uh, three years of maintenance. So it was a randomized trial of induction uh, alone, just induction uh, plus three years of maintenance that used a different strain that we don't have available today in uh, anywhere, actually, is the Connaught strain. There's some data to suggest that Connaught may be better than Tice. Uh, and that data really is in patients who only get induction. But the take-home message from this trial was that there was a statistically significant improvement in both recurrence-free survival and progression-free survival. Um, and though the, the margin of benefit on the PFS side is, is small by the Kaplan-Meier plot, um, uh, um, it, it's, it's a very clear indication of the ability of BCG um, uh, with all comers with high-grade disease to improve the long-term outcomes. The substantive difference in recurrence-free survival is obviously a lot bigger. But what I want you to take a look at is uh, uh, just say, take the, the five-year mark, so the hash mark between 48 and 72, and you can see the, the, the portion of patients that are recurring and progressing. And the reason I point this out is that um, it, it requires really a vigilance on the part um, to uh, stay after these patients, keep them in our practice. Um, I'm sure that you've seen many, many patients like I have that um, had got out to three years of, of BCG. They're doing great. A year or two later, they recur in the bladder, they recur in the prostatic urethra, they recur in the upper urinary tract. And these are patients that simply require lifelong uh, surveillance. The duration of time that you do cystoscopy after five years, I generally tend to stop. Uh, but I keep them in the practice um, uh, to keep an eye on them doing voided urine biomarkers. Um, and then the duration of doing cross-sectional imaging is also uh, variable. I certainly don't do it after five years, but I do keep them in practice next. So the critical time point in a patient who's been treated with BCG is um, uh, three months. Uh, so that's six weeks after um, the induction uh, therapy. And um, uh, if you just look at the, let's talk about the patients with CIS because um, I've kind of had to adjust what I do. I used to take patients to the OR at the three month mark and do biopsies under anesthesia to sort of pathologically stage the response. But um, we know from this trial that um, a proportion of patients who uh, uh, get the three-month maintenance uh, will, uh, uh, the CR rate goes up by about 20 to 25%. And even without the three-month uh, uh, maintenance, um, you'll see about 10 to 12% of patients with induction only who will clear CIS without additional treatment at six months. So uh, these are the data that have been with us for a long time, uh, getting this right. So at three months, um, you know, office cystoscopy, cytology, if you're doing it, additional biomarkers, that's fine. And if those are all negative, go on to three-month maintenance, and then at six months, so after six plus C, 
in patients with CIS, we state restage all those patients in the operating room. And again, if you have access to blue light cystoscopy, that's where the sweet spot is too. Next. So here's another case. Uh, this is maybe a little bit easier. 62-year-old uh, uh, female, year and a half ago, she had a high-grade T1 tumor re-resection was negative, got standard of care BCG plus maintenance, and then got referred to me now with recurrent high-grade T1 and CIS. And I think there's really only one uh, correct answer here. Next. Um, uh, um, but I threw up these options. Um, uh, one of the messages with BCG is if you've had an interval of greater than 12 months since the last BCG and the patient otherwise has a cancer that you'd be comfortable treating, um, uh, you can reinduce these patients. Um, and sometimes we'll add interferon, uh, um, and, uh, but I think in this case, the best treatment option, because um, it was relatively uh, soon uh, 18 months from her, from her initial diagnosis next, uh, would be a radical cystectomy. Um, so here's a scary kind of situation um, that I think is, is, is obvious. Um, so a very healthy 57-year-old has, um, and I think that um, uh, um, this uh, high, T1 high-grade multifocal CIS falls into our high-risk category sort of maybe borderline for um, a very high risk that would depend upon uh, whether the high grade disease, I'm sorry, whether the T1 disease was multifocal or um, large volume. But uh, his urologist gave him the option of proceeding with BCG, he came to see me. I said, no, we got to take you back to the operating room first, next, um, which is what we did. And you can see uh, why it's critical to do this. And I think that there's data out there to show that even if you were the one who did the first surgery and you say, oh, no, I got it all into fat, got everything, you know, uh, you got it. And this is the reason that you have to take them back. So, um, and uh, uh, this patient uh, obviously went on to get standard of care neoadjuvant chemotherapy and a radical cystectomy, and he's done fine since then. Next may have put the pathology up. No, I didn't. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about uh, re-TR recurrence. There's a kind of data out there. The take-home message is um, this is an important uh, next uh, step in virtually all uh, patients. And um, I was looking down at the table and I was looking at the labels and it's a little, uh, to me, it's a little hard to interpret, but I think the message is that uh, the difference in outcomes with and without re-TUR, the green is the re-TUR, the blue is the no re-TUR. Uh, <clears throat> and you can see that this persists over a very long period of time. And there's a huge drop-off if you look initially at the first um, five-month uh, time point in the, in the uh, no re-TUR. And this should be pretty obvious because those patients have residual, have likelihood of having residual uh, disease. Um, next. So there's been a randomized trial. A lot of us I like to use this paper, uh, this trial, as, a, as another example. We like level one evidence. This was not uh, as clean a study as you'd like, but um, it, it clearly shows the benefit of a, uh, of a re-TUR. Uh, uh, um, and persistent over time, as you can see in the 
uh, plot on the left and the Kaplan-Meier plot on the right, highly statistically significant. Uh, next, um, and I think there's another, yep, I think next. And this is just uh, overall uh, survival with a read TUR. So what I teach our residents is um, you'll never regret uh, taking the patient back. Um, now, in our setting, as, as yours, um, uh, a lot of these patients are either being referred from the outside or seeking a second opinion. And so um, uh, I think it's important if, if you are the one who did the original TUR, um, I always take those patients back, whether it for any patient with high-grade disease. Um, but it's also, obviously, I've made the point already that if you're the one who did the original TUR, you got to take them back. Next. Um, so this is obviously 2001, a much older uh, paper, and um, uh, there's, uh, this shows the importance of having detrusor muscle in the specimen uh, with high-grade T1Ds. These were patients that I believe all went on to get a cystectomy, so you've got accurate pathologic staging. But one of the concerns that I have about um, uh, retrospective studies like this, and I'm not criticizing these particular investigators, it's just something to be to recognize patients with clinical T1 that, um, so for instance, the, the other guy that I operated on yesterday um, uh, um, had uh, tumor-associated hydronephrosis. So he had an nephrostomy tube put on the right side. I took him back. He was referred to me by one of our outside urologists who's part of our group out in the periphery. Um, couldn't get a stint in. Um, and uh, so I took him back and I was actually able, never able to find his orifice, but the pathology from his first resection showed T1 high-grade disease. So that's, he doesn't have clinical T1 disease. He's got clinical T3 disease, um, completely independent of whether or not the pathologist was able to identify that. And so I think some of those patients ended up in this uh, trial uh, or this cohort. And so um, I think the uh, um, important thing is to get muscle in the spectrum initially and put all of the things that all of the information you have available to you from the CAT scan, from the EUA, from the presence of tumor-associated hydronephrosis, which is um, uh, most frequently associated with pathologic T3 disease. Next. And this is a, a paper, I'm sure, hopefully everybody in New York is familiar with this. Uh, so this is work uh, from Ida Dalbagni and Harry Herr, the memorial series showing uh, how the impact of now I've done my restaging, and, and, and Harry was always, probably still is, uh, adamant about restaging everybody because he also was uh, very intrigued by the, 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 by the uh, so-called radical TUR and the ability to, to treat some patients with invasive bladder cancer with just TURBT and a highly select group of patients. So he's got this wonderful series, but here it shows you that when you take the patient back, and there's uh, persistent um, uh, high-grade T1 disease that it has a pretty significant impact on outcomes. So those patients um, are also ones that you have to think about upfront cystectomy. Next. So this is um, back to our uh, Bladder Cancer Research uh, Consortium, and this is just our T1 series. 
these were all clinical uh, T1s, um, and you can see uh, uh, that uh, the percentage of patients that were upstaged by either T PT stage or node stage had the obvious impact on on outcome long term. So upstaging uh, uh, at cystectomy has a profound impact. I'll come back to this very quickly. Uh, um, um, uh, about uh, the importance of doing a cystectomy before a patient develops muscle invasive bladder cancer next. So here it is. So uh, this is one of many papers that have looked at this. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I hear a lot, or I heard a lot, um, that, uh, you know, um, cystectomy, you, kind of, you have to have muscle invasion. And so this, this shows very clearly the impact of doing a cystectomy at the appropriate time. I don't really like the term early. Uh, it's really treatment that we choose for or, or recommend for our patients and waiting um, for um, absolute evidence of muscle invasion to pull the trigger on a cystectomy, you're gonna end up with something like this on the right. You're, the patient's gonna sacrifice some survival benefit in the long run. So the best thing that we can do is identify those patients before they have muscle invasive disease, identify the patients who are unlikely to uh, be controlled long-term with BCG, and then uh, do an appropriate cystectomy as their form of therapy um, rather than, than waiting. Next. There you go. That's the take-home message there. Um, just uh, another more recent paper um, analyzing uh, this same issue, and it's stratified by uh, whether or not they had a TUR and whether or not there was muscle um, in the specimen. Um, and you can see from these various Kaplan-Meier plots, here's time to recurrence. Um, it's a little, to me, when I look at this, it's a little all over the map, but if you look at the blue line at the top, um, and these are no muscle, no re-TUR. And um, I hope for, you know, if you take away, hopefully you'll take away a few things from this, um, but that's really uh, uh, um, uh, uh, a recipe for long-term disaster. Uh, no re-TUR and no muscle in the specimen. Next, we can just kind of, here's time to progression. Uh, here's no muscle, the, the brown line, which is the worst outcome. No muscle on a retur next, and uh, the impact on uh, survival. Again, you can see now there, these these plots are overlapping, and you might look at that as skeptic and say, "Huh, doesn't really seem to to make much of a difference." But um, these this is a retrospective cohort, um, and uh, there's always going to be limitations to those types of analysis. Next. Okay, so um, I'm gonna show you two, two patients who I've operated on in the last uh, couple of months. Um, again, as illustrative cases, 55-year-old dressing year, um, and, uh, but he's a never smoker, so he has no risk factors. Obviously, the grossing materia should have been worked up a long time ago. And he, on CT, had a large tumor in the right side and a right uh, lateral wall diverticulum. So I would argue that if you looked at the CT, I apologize, this was an outside scan, so I didn't have it in my pocket to pull up the images. Um, you'd probably look at that CT, recognizing that it's in a diverticulum, and conclude that he needed a cystectomy. And I think that would be a 
appropriate, really just based on the CT. But I went in and did a TUR. And he had not just the disease in the diverticulum, but he had a lot of multifocal disease, sort of adjacent and remote. And this was all uh, T1 high grade muscle in the specimen, not involved. Um, and then uh, the, the disease in his diverticulum, uh, at least the pathology that I got was TA high grade. I couldn't resect it. I'd made a decision that he needed a cystectomy. And I think I've got the path here. Next. Oh, good. Okay. So the question is, I'm just going to throw this in because uh, I think many, some of you may know that um, this is uh, another area of interest of mine. We've got a clinical trial in the South Oncology Group that's completed accrual, uh, randomizing patients to uh, extended versus standard node dissection. Um, we're, we've just completed about three years of follow-up and it's not ready to report yet. Hopefully you're aware of the German clinical trial that studied this as well and it was a negative. Uh, trial. So the question here is, I've got a clinical T1, and, and uh, obviously everybody should get a standard node dissection, would be external iliac, internal iliac, and obturated lymph nodes bilaterally. Uh, but the question is, do you need to extend the node dissection higher? People refer to as an extended node dissection, maybe up to the aortic bifurcation. But if you look at the clinical data, the clinical trials that have looked at this and mapping studies, um, the incidence of positive nodes with with pathologic T1 high-grade disease, probably in the less than 10% range. Um, and uh, virtually all of those patients who have positive nodes, it's going to be in the standard template. So in a case like this, unless I see something um, intraoperatively that makes me concerned, say, I, let's say I had a suspicious lymph node and, and maybe I did a frozen section in the standard template and that was positive, I'd certainly go up and and do an extended node dissection, but he did not. Here's the pathology, um, which may not come as any surprise to you. Go ahead. Um, so we had a PTA in the diverticulum. Um, well, why is that? Because obviously there's no, uh, in an acquired diverticulum, there's no detrusor muscles. So if it invades all, it gets into the fat and hence PT3A, so it was microscopic. I think we did uh, a pretty good job at um, uh, removing all of the potential lymph node bearing tissue. And then the question comes up, we're not going to get into this today, whether he should get adjuvant chemotherapy. Uh, we're not going to do that in this case um, because of the, of the microscopic involvement and um, the completeness of the node dissection. We'll see how he does long term. I think that hopefully this would be an obvious situation where um, uh, um, all of us would recognize that this patient needs cystectomy. Now the next patient, go ahead. Um, uh, rough, about the same age. Uh, he had a very, sorry about the noise in the background, a uh, very large tumor uh, in his bladder, former cigarette smoker, so that's his risk, um, had a TURB uh, with variant histology. So this is confirmed by our pathologist looking at the outside slides, 10% micropapillary, no LBI, uh, re-resection uh, by me, same pathology. So here's our this patient falls into the very high risk category because of the papillary component. Um, many people have tried to address the, the issue about does it matter um, how much micropillary is there? And I think the answer to that is we don't know. Uh, next. And again, the extent of node dissections. I think my argument here would be the same. Um, uh, as a, I felt confident that this was uh, likely to be no worse 
then a, then a PT1 because of the resection. Next, here's his pathology. Um, and uh, uh, so TA high grade, so that's good. So we ha only had residual non-invasive cancer. Um, I paid the pathologist extra money to find out more lymph nodes. <laughs> um, this is clearly exceeds our, our, our normal, but I think the point is, is that um, a really thorough anatomic node dissection uh, you can give the pathologist the best opportunity uh, to identify potential metastases. So these two patients, um, I think, really represent probably fairly easy decisions about um, doing upfront cystectomy. Uh, and um, uh, because um, if you don't control the disease at this point, uh, the likelihood of progression and subsequent uh, mortality, I think, is too high to take that risk. Next. So I'm going to just throw up everything there. I think I've got another, uh, just advance it so everybody can see the whole slide. Okay, so um, uh, just in, in summary for this part, uh, um, uh, the, in this situation, um, when, when you have progression of T1 disease from TA or TIS and the presumption is that they've had BCG, those patients, um, I would say standard of care is cystectomy um, and then for patients who have an initial presentation of a high-grade T1, all the things that we, we've talked about. Um, I think the other thing is this is a study looking at lymphovascular invasion. So um, I touched on it briefly uh, about you should be able, there's, there's, there's blood vessels um, within the lamina propria. Um, here's an example of a, of a micrograph on the right showing um, but uh, I think most pathologists would have a very easy time recognizing cancer cells within an endothelial line space. There's um, immunohistochemical markers which can uh, help identify that, and you see the profound impact on lymphovascular invasion. So um, uh, it is a, a priori requirement for the pathologist to describe whether or not there's lymphovascular invasion in the pathologic sample. And just because it's T1 and you don't see it, you need to read the pathologist and say, hey, um, you didn't comment on presence or absence of lymphovascular invasion. And it's really important for my decision-making to know that. So the absence in a pathology report with any invasive cancer T1 or greater of any comment about LVI should prompt a phone call uh, to the pathologist to go back and take another look at it. Next. Uh, go ahead, next. Yeah, you can, is that, um, oh, please make sure your microphone is muted or that, is that to me, Gina? <laughs> uh, okay, um, so here's some strong indications for upfront cystectomy. Uh, talked a lot about micropapillary disease. Um, got it, no to the audience, thank you. And uh, the other thing that's really quite interesting is Lon, who's a pathologist at uh, uh, Methodist Hospital where we used to do most of our work has published on this and has shown that the majority of patients with micropapillary disease have lymphovascular invasion. Um, it's relatively straightforward for the pathologist to identify. I think most of us have recognized that, um, you know, we see a bit more of this over the last 10 to 15 years when it was first called to our attention from uh, the group Andy Anderson. Uh, uh, next. And then small cell, I think, is what I have up. Yeah, so um, small cell, uh, 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 neuroendocrine is also a relatively 
straightforward pathologic diagnosis. Um, even if you have, even if it's a T1 high grade with small cell carcinoma, we'll treat those patients with neoadjuvant chemotherapy. And then uh, most of them should get a cystectomy. Um, radiation is an option in this particular setting of small cell. Uh, um, uh, but I think for the most part, uh, standard of care would be uh, a neoadjuvant chemotherapy. We use a slightly different regimen that's used in small cell of the lung. That would be a topicide platinum. Next. And you can just throw up the rest of the animation. Um, so uh, these other histologic variants, which I, I find are quite uncommon um, in uh, T1 high-grade disease, but if you do see them, uh, these would be other uh, variant histology indicators to proceed with initial cystectomy. Next. Okay, so this is a paper that I would encourage everybody to look at. Uh, this is, um, uh, um, was published a few years ago in JCO. Um, it's often quoted because I think that it's very comprehensive and, and very well done and obviously in a high-impact journal. Uh, it's not something that urologists necessarily read routinely, the urologic oncologists do. Um, and uh, you can see the depth of their study of, the, uh, of this meta-analysis of 73 studies. Um, and again, you see the, the recurrent themes, the depth invasion, lymphovascular invasion, presence or absence of CIS. You can look at the four spots on the left and identify those that are significant that don't cross over the blind line down the middle at one larger tumors and uh, for some reason or other older age uh, also uh, fell out in their analysis. So um, this is probably about as good as it gets uh, from a quality standpoint of a meta-analysis um, and meta-analyses of uh, randomized clinical trials uh, or even uh, phase two trials qualify as level one evidence. Next. Um, and this is another uh, sort of look at this um, from uh, obviously a very large cohort, 2,500 patients, limited by its retrospective nature. Uh, but uh, again, focusing on the topic today of T1 high grade disease and in their uh, multivariate analysis, also age uh, fell out, tumor size, and whether or not they had uh, maintenance EG. I think there's a uh, next. Yeah, and so what they identified uh, these risk factors, then developed a model uh, from anywhere from zero to three of the adverse um, <clears throat> uh, risk factors. And you can see kind of what you would expect that uh, the more risk factors you have, the worse the, uh, the uh, outcome, in this case, time to progression. So if you had particularly an older patient, larger volume tumor, um, and in this case, uh, did not have maintenance CG, uh, for instance, then uh, that would, those patients would be at higher risk for subsequent progression. Next. And you can just throw up both. Um, this is, uh, we had a nice um, sort of debate at the SIU in Athens back in the fall. Um, and uh, I came across these two uh, algorithms uh, from uh, highly reputable uh, uh, team, um, and uh, you can kind of pick whichever one you like. They're complicated, uh, but if you just, let's just kind of take the one on the left. Um, so um, in the box that says RETUR, consider random bladder biopsy, I would remove the consider. Uh, I would use that opportunity when you're going back to absolutely map out the bladder. Um, 
there's no real indication for uh, biopsying the static urethra at the initial presentation, but definitely in a patient who recurs after BCG. Um, and then you can see in their algorithm if uh, that re uh, resection has less than T1 disease, I think it would be obvious you go on to BCG. Uh, if they have T1, um, uh, then consider cystectomy. Uh, but uh, um, we've got a number of patients, as I'm sure you all do as well, uh, where that re-resection shows minimal T1, uh, and I'm very comfortable treating those patients with BCG, uh, particularly if they, they're a little higher risk for a cystectomy. Um, and then uh, it, on the right side of that, if they have uh, multiple high-risk factors or even one very high-risk factor, which they uh, uh, call variant histology LVI. Now, I would say that hydronephrosis um, in a, in a, that's tumor-associated, in other words, T1 high-grade with hydro um, is more likely a T3. But the other thing that you have to be very careful about is making sure that they don't have a ureteral tumor causing the hydro. So if you get in there and, and you're not really convinced that your, the high-grade T1 tumor was causing the hydronephrosis, um, you've got to do uh, you look at the upper urinary tract, retrograde, do a ureteroscopy, whatever you need to do to prove that there's no tumor in there, because that obviously changes your management. And then uh, the uh, a little bit more complicated algorithm on the right, but I think that these are good uh, ways to, when, when you're um, particularly learning how to take care of these patients, to these algorithms can be quite helpful. Next. Uh, I've shown this already, so we can go to the next uh, slide. Um, and this is just, uh, these are uh, Kaplemeier plots from a paper in, in 2012 showing essentially the, the same type of analysis, immediate cystectomy, conservative management, versus delayed uh, radical uh, cystectomy. This is a comparison of initial versus uh, conservative management. And you can see that the initial cystectomy, um, at least on the right, had, had a better outcome in the more contemporary series. Next. And then this is the comparison of immediate to delayed. Um, and uh, I think in this situation, um, it didn't have a negative impact on outcome. And I think this is going to be largely a reflection of how vigilant we are in following these patients very carefully. And if we can do that, they're compliant and we pull the trigger, so to speak, um, on a cystectomy at the first sign of um, recurrence of high-grade disease, and they're going to have a good outcome. Next. Okay, so I've got a couple of slides on genomics, and then uh, hopefully we'll have minutes for uh, questions. Um, uh, so um, I think some of you know that uh, one of the best things I've gotten to do in my career was um, co-chairing co the uh, analysis working group for the Cancer Genome Atlas Project Muscle Invasive Bladder Cancer, and I've been on the steep part of the learning curve for quite a long time, but I pay attention I think to this field quite a bit. And um, the, the group from Lund, Sweden, were really the first people to comprehensively look at uh, the genomics of bladder cancer. They had it across the entire spectrum. They've got a <clears throat> just an absolutely phenomenal paper trail. Um, uh, and their, their focus is largely on transcriptomics, but they've also uh, done a very nice job of translating that into things that that most of us can understand a little bit better in terms of immunohistochemical markers focusing on a handful of genes. You can see the bottom panel, FGFR3. 
TP63 or B2 or 2 for instance, KRT5 is a, is a primitive cytokeratin associated with um, uh, basal tumors. Um, but what they did is they took a group of T1 high grade uh, disease, um, much like we've been talking about. And if you just look on the right, that their uh, uh, urobasal group had, a, had the best outcome, uh, genomically unstable and squamous cell-like had the worst outcome. And uh, that's reflected in uh, a number of markers uh, that are very easily uh, done within pathology um, uh, 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 laboratory. Expression of FGFR3, for example, would be um, uh, um, uh, trying to look at what the comment is, <laughs> uh, would be associated with luminal papillary disease, which has a much better outcome. Next. Um, Yep, that's just another uh, from the Kaplan-Meier plot um, the, uh, showing the outcome. So this is um, a, a fantastic uh, prospective uh, study from Lars Durscott, uh, who's been a pioneer in transcriptomics of non-muscle invasive disease. And they have a uromole, what they call uromole group, which now has over 3,000, I believe, prospectively uh, collected tumors. And this is a paper that was published in 2016 in Cancer Cell. Um, that, um, and they did unsupervised hierarchical clustering and identify three uh, clusters. And you can um, read along some of the covariates on the right. Remember that yellow is high uh, and blue is low. Um, and uh, so they looked at obvious things of tumor stage, tumor grade, size, growth pattern, concomitant CIS, CG. And, um, and for those of you who are not familiar with, with looking at heat maps, if you just... Uh, advance the animation. This is the summary from there. Uh, whoa, something happened. Lost the animation. Um, but uh, um, what you see in class three is basal-like tumors. So in muscle invasive cancer, um, about 30% of those are basal tumors, um, which are associated with less differentiated cytokeratins and uh, uh, benefit from neoadjuvant chemotherapy and also immunotherapy. It's interesting that you can see these subtypes in uh, non-muscle invasive disease. Next. And there's a, a very nice paper uh, from Eugene Pietzak. Uh, Eugene, if I've boogered up your, the pronouncement of your last name, I apologize. Uh, he's obviously from New York, uh, comparing low-grade and high-grade disease. And if you just look on the right side, um, the high-grade uh, T1s are in yellow, so if you look at grade and stage, you can see that they had a nice representation of high-grade uh, T1 disease, um, and you can see some of the genes that were um, altered in those patients, um, and particularly they have an interest in um, DNA damage repair gene alterations. Uh, they've shown that those patients are more likely to respond to cisplatin-based neoadjuvant chemotherapy, and you can see uh, that uh, uh, some of that data on the, the bottom right. Next. And just kind of this up, this is I think the last genomic slide also from Eugene. Um, and this has been very intriguing to me because they compared patients who um, uh, had a primary muscle invasive bladder cancer a little bit outside the bandwidth of what we're talking about and secondary MIBC, which are by definition progression. And the vast majority of those patients had BCG. And the suggestion in this paper is that um, ERCC2, the canonical DNA damage repair gene alteration, was present only in the uh, primary muscle invasive bladder cancer. So there's a, some suggestion that 
patients who progress from, uh, from non-muscle invasive disease, the presumption is they've been treated with BCG may be less likely to respond to neoadjuvant chemotherapy that needs to be tested and validated. Next. Let's go ahead and advance. I think we'll wrap it up. Yep, next. I think I've got a, a summary. Yeah, so just kind of throw this up. These are the guidelines. Um, I think we've kind of through this in, in detail. You can go ahead and cycle through the. Um, um, so um, the AUA, EAU guidelines are relatively harmonized um, in uh, recommendations for uprint cystectomy. These, again, just for the arts, large tumor size, high grade is all we've been really talking about. Uh, Sometimes difficult to assess access tumor location, like example of a tumor diverticulum, uh, multifocal disease, presence of CIS, lymphovascular invasion, and then particularly in the patients who um, work after uh, BCG, you got to look at the prostatic urethra. And then um, uh, next. There you go. So that's the take home message. Um, we talked about T1 substaging and the importance of this. Uh, who should get an initial, who should get front cystectomy. Um, and then patients who don't have any high risk features and no T1 on reverse section, they can be treated with BCG induction, standard of care maintenance, as long as they're responding and not having any toxicity. And then think very seriously about the patient who has persistent T1 high grade on reaction or recurrence after BCG, that's that radical cystectomy would likely be the standard of care. So that wraps it up. Um, I really appreciate it. Sorry for whatever technical difficulties, but I'm happy to take any questions. Dr. Lerner, thank you very much. Um, this is Miata, one of the other residents that's helping with uh, the series. Um, thank you, honestly, for this um, guideline and evidence-based um, uh, you know, management approach for you know, these uh, T1 non-muscle invasive tumors. One of the questions we had from, um, one of the first questions we had was um, an individual asked if, um, you know, you had done imaging prior. Clearly the imaging had shown, you know, T3 or locally advanced disease. Um, you had a large bladder lesion. Um, you went in for TURBT, resected, but you didn't get muscle in the biopsy. Would you proceed to like a re-TURBT to confirm or would you counsel the patient and just say, hey, look, I think it's safe to say we can take the bladder out. Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, so uh, I'm concerned if it's tumor-associated hydronephrosis, then by definition, that's a muscle-invasive bladder cancer. I gave you a couple of caveats where that might not be the case. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, um, and if it's, and it also depends a bit who did the resection. So if it's a patient who's being referred in, um, I gave you an example. I mean, I, I take those patients back to the operating room and restage them right. myself. But um, if, 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 you're, if you did it and, and it's tumor-associated hydronephrosis, they basically need a cystectomy. The, the argument, though, too, is they, they probably need neoadjuvant chemotherapy. So the, the, the other thing that I teach is that... Um, the, the goal of the TURBT, obviously, stage and grade and histology, um, but uh, um, that's probably not a patient who, that's not someone I would call clinical T1, mm -hmm. call them clinical T3. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, this is a question that I had was, does any of these advanced cystoscopic, um, like narrowband or cis view with blue light cystoscopy, does that fit anywhere in your 
oh, yeah. algorithm for TURBT or yeah. Yep, yep. So um, there, there's just just to be clear, there's no the FDA approved indication is not for muscle invasive disease. It's for non-muscle invasive disease designed to detect additional papillary or CIS lesions. So um, the the sweet spot is you know at the initial diagnosis. So I think most of these patients we're going to do a cystoscopy in the office. If we if we say okay, I think this is a non-muscle invasive disease, then um, we'll use uh, blue light on every single patient. We, we, we have Olympus scopes in the office, so by definition, we've got narrowband imaging. We, we use that for the flexible cystoscopy. Um, fluorescence is now approved for use with flexible cystoscopy if you have that capability in the clinic. Um, but yeah, we'll do it, and particularly if it's a patient who's referred from the outside, um, I'll, I'll use it in those patients. Uh, for the reasons I mentioned before, to, to really get a feel for the adjacent and remote mucosa presence or absence of CIS. Great. Um, another question um, is um, was that was presented was: Are there currently any is is there currently any role for molecular subtyping or any other tissue-based biomarkers yeah. for clinical risk stratification for T1 disease? Um, the the short answer is. Uh, no, or maybe not yet. So be on the lookout uh, for a paper that's gonna, that's under revision uh, by Josh Meeks. Some of you may know Josh, mm -hmm. did his fellowship at Memorial, brilliant MD, PhD at Northwestern. Um, he's got a cohort of about 70 high-grade T1 tumors that has done a very deep dive in transcriptomics. And there's gonna be some interesting hypotheses that come out of that. He and I and others have been talking about how to do a clinical trial um, uh, in the Southwest Oncology Group using uh, a risk stratification model that builds in genomics. That's clearly the future. I mean, I think that any, I mean, all of us, you know, scratch our heads all the time about the biology of these tumors and, you know, who can I safely treat with BCG? Who needs a cystectomy? Um, because we've all seen this blow up in our face. We thought we had it right. So I would say stay tuned, and I'm hopeful that in the next few years we, we can get new clinical trials to test and validate uh, genomic predictors. Yep. Great. Well, um, just uh, for the sake of time and uh, respect for everyone's time, including yours, just want to thank you again uh, so much for being a part of this Empire uh, Lecture Series. It was a pleasure to have you. Um, for anyone that um, you know tuned in late, the recordings will be available um, in a few days, um, hopefully, if not later this afternoon, on our website. So tune in, and if you have the opportunity to fill out the survey, we'd love to have all and every <clears throat> possible response to kind of improve this this program that we have. Dr. Lerner, thank you again so much um, for this uh, very in-depth review. Um, and uh, we hope to have you again sometime.